Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. It's where we're going to be at today and the next few weeks. This morning, we're continuing our study through the book of Acts. Last week may have seemed like a continuation of Acts because Pastor Jeff taught from Acts, but he is spoiling it for us. He went way too far ahead, and now I can't teach that passage later. No, just kidding. It was a blessing having Jeff with us last week. Uh, Today we're going to look at a study I've titled, The Clash That Led to the Council. Our main text is Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 5, but just for some brief context, two weeks ago, we finished out chapter 14 of Acts. We found Paul and Barnabas returning from the work that the Holy Spirit had set them apart to, had sent them out into. It was a missionary journey that first took them to the island of Cyprus. They went east from Syrian Antioch. They traveled by sea to Cyprus, then north to the mainland and into uh, Pamphylia, went into Asia Minor in the region of Galatia and went east pretty far all the way to the city of Derby. was upwards of about 300 to 350 miles of traveling through the Taurus Mountains there in modern-day Turkey. And as they're heading back through the cities where they had just preached the gospel and planted churches in, we found that they strengthened the disciples. They appointed leaders in the churches and finally made their way back to their sending church in Syrian Antioch. Paul's first missionary journey Paul and Barnabas, I should say, had been full of difficulty, opposition, persecution, affliction, and danger, but had also been full of the Holy Spirit's leading and empowering, the the gospel going out, people being saved as they put their faith in Jesus, new churches being planted, discipleship taking place, and seeing God work through their lives, and in their circumstances, in a powerful way, that he got all the glory And when they returned, they gathered the church in Antioch together. They reported all that God had done, the door of faith that he had opened to the Gentiles. And after giving that report, they stayed there in Syria and Antioch a long time with the disciples, no doubt resuming their leadership roles in the church there as they shepherded, shepherded, pastored, taught the believers there in Antioch. But troubling things were about to happen that will require a council to assemble at the church in Jerusalem that will become a a crucial or formative moment in the early church that will affect really the rest of church history. How these church leaders are going to respond has affected how you and I are are able to come to Christ still today. These are things that we'll see over the next couple of weeks. But with that context in mind, let's begin reading in verse 1. We're going to read Acts 15, verses 1 and 2. It says in Acts 15, verse 1, And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And all the men said, Oh, no, you didn't. No, they didn't say that. Therefore, some of you are like, wait, what did you just say? 
Therefore, verse 2, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. Again, a long time has passed. We don't know exactly how long. This is now upwards of 20 years after the day of Pentecost. A lot has taken place. A lot has progressed in the church. The gospel has gone out into new territories. Gentiles have now become one with Jewish believers and Samaritan believers. The, the, the word of God has been spreading. This is, this is an amazing time in the early church. But as we've seen consistently, as God's word is going out, as lives are being transformed, as the grace of God is being preached, the enemy is very creative in how he seeks to come against that. And so we see different moments in the early church where there's sort of a crossroads, a moment that could potentially bring great division to the church, could hinder the work of the gospel. We saw that with Ananias and Sapphira, hypocrisy being entered in. We saw that in Philippi, uh, Philippian, uh, we saw that in Philip going into Samaria and preaching the gospel to the Samaritans and all of a sudden word getting back to the church in Jerusalem and so they send Barnabas to kind of see what's going on because Jews and Samaritans weren't, weren't cool with each other. And, and so they saw what God was doing and they prayed and, and they were filled with the spirit and all of a sudden that Samaritan-Jewish relation became healed. The walls of separation came crumbling down. And then God gives Peter this vision of the sheet with the unclean animals and the clean animals, and he tells him, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, No, God, I don't do that. I'm kosher. I had never eaten bacon in my life. It smells great, but I don't do it. But God makes clear to Peter that what was really being conveyed had nothing to do with the animals, that it had everything to do with the mindset, the, 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 the ethnic animosity that was hindering the gospel from going out to people that God loved and he cared about, the Gentiles. Peter goes and he preaches the gospel to a man named Cornelius and all the Gentiles that had come to his house. And the awesome thing is that as he's preaching, without even giving an invitation, they are saved, they're baptized with the Holy Spirit, they start speaking in tongues, and Peter and the guys with them are blown away that God was doing the same thing with them that he had done with them on the day of Pentecost. There's these moments in time, and we can look back even throughout church history since then, there's been moments in time that have been formative, but they're formative because the enemy wants to do everything in his power to come against people being saved and taken off of that road leading to destruction. And it's no different now. This wasn't just an inconvenient sort of thing. This wasn't an uncomfortable Sort of thing, again, jokingly, like the adult males hearing this and going, I don't think so. I don't, I've never been circumcised 
and I'm not going to start now. I'm not, this is not, stuff's not going to change. You don't have any painkillers for me. There's something deeper going on. There's a trip being placed on these believers that is far deeper than the physical experience that they might have. A bondage that would come. That was something that God never put on anybody, any New Testament believer. The trouble we see comes from these certain men who came from Judea, meaning that they came from the Jerusalem church. They traveled some 300 miles up to Syrian Antioch there on the Orontes River. And they teach the brethren that unless they're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, that they cannot be saved. But not only were they adding circumcision as this requirement for salvation, we actually see in verse 5, there was an added demand that the Gentile believers also keep the law of Moses. You know, it's interesting throughout history how the simplicity of the gospel has been taken and added to where the simplicity has been removed, where the true gospel has been added to. And and it's things that may seem ridiculous even to us at times. Things like, if you don't worship on Saturday, you're not saved. If you're not Believing in Jesus plus being water baptized, you're not saved. There was a time even in the 60s and 70s where people would take it a step further and go, well, if you weren't water baptized in the name of Jesus only, you're not saved. Listen to old Pastor Chuck Smith tapes. They don't have tapes anymore. They're just called tracks, I guess, but... You'll hear him talk about situations where people would come to the church there in Costa Mesa and he'd have to escort them off, grabbing them by their collar as they were trying to lead the believers astray. You have churches that say, well, if you don't come to our church, you're not saved. If you're not a part of our membership, you're not saved. And the list goes on. This would have completely caught the believers there in Antioch off guard because this was never something that had been taught to them by Paul or Barnabas or the other church leaders in Antioch before. See, when the scattered believers first first reached Antioch in Acts chapter 11, the message wasn't Jesus plus circumcision or plus the law of Moses. They just preached the Lord Jesus to them, the gospel message of Jesus' death and burial, and resurrection. And it was that simple message about what Jesus had done for them that caused these Gentile and Jewish believers in the city of Antioch to believe and turn to the Lord. The message that Paul later shared with the unsaved Jews and Gentiles in the synagogue at Pisidian Antioch, that that through Jesus is preached the forgiveness of sins, and by him everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you cannot be justified by the law of Moses. That was the same message these believers in Antioch of Syria had heard and received and had stood upon as their basis 
for salvation. And now these certain men from Judea, they show up and they teach them that they couldn't be saved unless they were circumcised, which caused great distress and confusion and and just really messed them up. We gain insight into these things by what was written to them in the decree later on in this chapter. Listen to what they wrote to these believers in Acts 15, verse 24. It says, Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, notice, to whom we gave no such commandment. These certain men who went out from the church in Jerusalem didn't go out because they were sent out. The Jerusalem leaders gave no such commandment. These things weren't coming from them. And the result was that this group's words troubled and unsettled the souls of the Gentile believers in Antioch. This group acted like they had authority, but they didn't. And by their teaching, they were actually coming against what Paul And Barnabas had already been teaching these believers in the years leading up to this point. But but not only were these certain men who went out from Judea and were troubling the believers in Antioch not sent out, Paul gives greater clarity about this whole situation in what he wrote to the churches of Galatia in Galatians chapters 2, saying that these certain men were actually false brethren, And that they came to spy out their liberty in Christ Jesus and and bring the Gentile believers into bondage. See, instead of celebrating the work that God was doing by his grace among the Gentiles, this group, because of their legalistic mindset, could only see what God was doing through a critical lens. And ultimately, these people were divisive and extremely destructive in what they did here. Understand, circumcision never saved anyone. Never saved anybody. But now this group elevated it as a prerequisite for people to be saved. According to their teachings, Jesus wasn't enough. It was Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus plus keeping the law. Notice that they were prioritizing the external over the internal, the physical over the spiritual, doing the same sorts of things that Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for during his earthly ministry. And as we see in verse 2, Paul and Barnabas responded to this by having no small dissension and dispute with them, which is a really nice way of saying that there was a really huge dissension and dispute among them. There was a big argument. There was a big conflict that happened between these men from Judea and the apostles because what these men were bringing in was a false gospel, a a perversion of the true gospel. It was a teaching that that would actually derail these Gentile believers in their faith and cause their faith to be shipwrecked. This was a serious situation that Paul and Barnabas responded seriously to. The dissension and dispute was great 
Because what was at stake, people's salvation was great. In fact, nothing could be greater. And because of this conflict, a decision was made that Paul and Barnabas and certain other disciples, no doubt going with them as witnesses, would head to Jerusalem to bring up this question to the apostles and elders there. Paul details this experience in what he writes to the churches of Galatia in Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. But check out what he wrote in Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Writing about this experience, Paul wrote in Galatians 2, verse 1, Then after 14 years, this is 14 years after the other time that he went to Jerusalem that he mentions in chapter 1, After 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel, which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised and... He says in verse 4, this occurred because a false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. See, when it came to issues of salvation and people potentially being, a led, being led astray from the truth of the gospel, salvation by grace through faith in Christ. They were unwilling to yield, unwilling to budge when confronting this false teaching and knew this was something serious that had to be brought before the apostles and elders so that there would be a unified response of the church against it which leads us into verses 3 and 4. Let's look at those two verses. Luke continues to write for us, So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. This trip south to Jerusalem through the areas of Phoenicia and Samaria was full of them giving testimony to the churches in those areas of what God had done among the Gentiles, describing, we're told, the conversion of the Gentiles and causing great joy to all the brethren. The the churches in Phoenicia and Samaria experienced great joy when they heard how the Gentiles had put their faith in Jesus Christ through Paul and Barnabas' preaching, rejoiced when they heard Paul and Barnabas explain to them the message they preached about the forgiveness and salvation and justification that only comes through faith in Jesus. And I'm sure this would have been hugely edifying to these believers in this area since that was the same message they had heard and believed and been saved by. We could say that joy was robbed away when those certain men came to Syrian Antioch teaching that the Gentiles needed more than Jesus to be saved, that they needed to be circumcised and, and keep the law of Moses. That, that's not a joyful message. That's a, that's a message 
that actually heaps a, a huge burden on a person, weighing them down and making them feel buried and defeated. If I said, hey, you know what? Any one of you can be saved. Believe in Jesus. But there's 613 laws that you also have to keep to be saved. How many of us would go, I'm down. I mean, we, in our sort of ideology of what that might potentially look like, we might go, yes, that's me. Until we started trying to live out those 613 laws, the do's and don'ts, and found that, you know what? I'm blowing it. I've kept two. I've kept 200. Well, you still broke 413. The condemnation that would come in that place the frustration of wanting to accomplish all of it, but being unable to ever actually do it. Oh man, can you imagine the kind of state of mind you and I would find ourselves in if, if what came out of this was, you know what, those certain men were right. For the rest of church history, what was, what was preached was, yes, believe in Jesus, but all the dudes get circumcised, and you better make sure to keep the law of Moses. The men are like, well, did it happen as a baby? I'll try to keep the law. Man, it's, there's no joy in that. There's no freedom in that place. When you said, here's Jesus, but there's a bunch of other things. Here's Jesus, but even something else added into it, we have taken away from the all-sufficiency of the atoning work of Jesus Christ upon the cross of Calvary. When we try to add anything in on top of just Jesus alone. We spit in the face of our Lord. We demean the work that he accomplished. What we say is, Jesus, I know you said it is finished, but what I'm saying is, there's a little bit more. There's a couple more things. That burden that was being placed on these Gentile believers was a burden that God was not placing upon them. As Paul and Barnabas and their companions visited these areas, they shared the testimony of what Jesus had done with the Gentiles through simple faith in Christ. We, we see the reaction that God intends for us to have great joy because the gospel is not a burden no the gospel removes the burdens and brings real freedom and, and joy and hope because it's all about what jesus has done for us all 
of it by his grace. All of it for us because he loves us and he wants us for himself for all eternity. All of us should be able to say, Amen, praise you, God. Thank you. Thank you that your gospel is not a burden, it is a blessing. There's joy for us today. And you know what? For some of us today, even we might find ourselves falling into some legalistic sorts of patterns where we've actually been robbed of the simplicity of the gospel and and found ourselves putting burdens on ourselves that God never put there. And for some today, maybe your joy has been robbed away. The peace of just experiencing life in Christ. Because in some way or shape or form, You've said, yes, I believed in Jesus, but I've also added something else. And maybe in your mind, you're not saying, well, this is what I need to do to be saved. But maybe the burden that you're experiencing would testify to you this morning that somewhere in there in your theology is Jesus plus something else. I encourage you today, if that's you, lay that thing aside. Cast it away from you. As we see in verse 4, once they finally made it to Jerusalem, they're received by the church and the apostles and the elders and reported all things that God had done with them. Just like they had done in the areas of Phoenicia and Samaria with the churches there, they now did the same in Jerusalem explaining the gospel message of grace they had been preaching. Not Jesus plus circumcision or Jesus plus the law, but faith in Jesus alone, explaining how the Gentiles received that message and turned in faith to Jesus Christ, receiving his salvation. The Lord opening the door of faith to the Gentiles. And as they shared those things, they put the emphasis on the fact that God had done these things with them, giving him all the glory. But unlike the situation where Peter returned to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 11 after preaching the gospel to Cornelius and him and his household of Gentiles all getting saved, how those of the circumcision contended, criticized Peter, for going into a Gentile's home and eating with those who are uncircumcised. And Peter had explained how God had orchestrated all of it, asked them how he could withstand God, how those who had contended with him had become silent and glorified God, saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. It was a peaceful and joyful ending to a volatile situation. Here, things didn't end like that. Paul and Barnabas didn't explain all that God had done and everyone became silent and glorified God. No, look at what we're told in verse five. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Remember the the Pharisees hated Jesus during his earthly ministry 
They were envious of him. That's why they ended up crucifying him. So this is, a, this is actually a big deal that there were some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed in Jesus. But clearly, they still held to their former belief that you also had to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. Notice they said circumcision was necessary. And that keeping the law of Moses was something they needed to be commanded to do. But when we look at Jesus' teachings, which is what the apostles were teaching others, this wasn't something he required or made a commandment even to the Jews that he was preaching to. Instead, Jesus consistently called people to a place of belief, of trust, of faith in him. That through faith in him is, is how a person receives salvation, receives eternal life. Paul, who before meeting and being saved by Jesus on the road to Damascus, was a Pharisee and zealous for the law, so zealous that he persecuted the church of God. He was able to leave his legalism and his religiosity behind him because he understood the law couldn't justify a person. It couldn't declare someone righteous. And because he saw how badly he needed the grace of Jesus in his own life. Check out what Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. He said to them, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Those of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed were missing this truth, that their justification, being declared righteous in the sight of God, it was not coming through faith in Jesus and adherence to Mosaic law, but only came through Christ alone. This whole situation was probably the most dangerous moment in the early church so far, but God was going to use these things to expose wrong thinking, expose the false gospel that these legalistic Jewish believers had been clinging to so that the true gospel would come forth in this council and be proclaimed and stood upon. And we'll get into this more next week as we see the convening of this council in verses 6 through 21. But what the Gentiles faced in the beginning of this chapter by those who had spied out their liberty and sought to bring them under bondage and had taught them things that troubled them and, and unsettled their souls, it made me think of some of the things that have been happening in our day. All the very loud voices and the ways that some with their words have troubled and unsettled the souls of Christians. I want to ask us this morning, what things have been spoken to us that have troubled us and unsettled our souls? You're like, well, Jared, how much time do you have? I could probably write a novel by all the things that have troubled me and unsettled my soul. There are words that have been spoken in conversation, posted on social media, preached from pulpits even in this season 
that may not be, you know, unless you do this, you cannot be saved, but are words that have troubled and unsettled many souls by making people feel that they need to adopt a certain stance, be a, against something or be for something or they're blowing it in their Christian walk, making people feel that they're a lesser Christian than someone else that's doing or not doing something else that someone else is doing or not doing, left people feeling condemned because of a trip that someone else has put on them that God hasn't actually put on them. There's a type of legalism in the Western church in these days that's not as extreme or blatant as, you know, unless you do this, you cannot be saved. That's still damaging. It's still troubling and confusing and unsettling believers. Things that are non-salvation, non-essential issues of the faith but have been presented in a way that they are essentials of the faith. And these things have created factions and divisions and strife within Jesus' church, both at large in the world, but also within local fellowships. Listen, I understand that people have strong convictions about a lot of things, and that's okay. But the way that some have expressed their convictions is not very Christ-like, and it's definitely not biblical, and it's troubled and unsettled people's souls and caused strife and division and lovelessness to abound. Many of these non-salvation, non-essential issues have been presented in a way where the person sharing their convictions is making their convictions the bar or the standard for real Christianity that others must live up to. And if they don't, a condemning sort of judgment is handed out, and that's not okay. Look, there are things worth having a great dissension and dispute over. The gospel message, salvation, essential issues of the faith, redefining or minimizing or excusing sin, undermining or changing or twisting God's word. They're just a few examples of things worth having a great dissension and dispute about. But while hard stances will have to be taken at different points in these last days, we can't miss that there is much to rejoice over because of the grace that's been extended to us in Christ Jesus, how he saved us, not by works that we've done, but by the work that he finished on the cross for us. You know, I fear in these days, what's being left for a lot of us is actually sort of a hardening and a souring sort of effect. And our hearts are no longer soft and open to others, but a little more closed up. A little more critical. Seeing the world as the enemy, instead of seeing the enemy as the enemy, and the world as those in cap- being captive to the enemy. 
And I think for a lot of people, there's a, there's a lack of joy. There's a lot of anger, and that anger has robbed a lot of people of just the simple joy of the Lord, remembering what God has done for them, remembering that the world around them, they used to be a part of, they used to be just like them. May we not be, uh, sorry, may we not trouble or unsettle the souls of others because our hearts are critical and have been influenced and hardened by our own preferences and convictions on things that are not primary issues in the heart of God and in his word. But may we preach Jesus, point people to Jesus, love others with the agape love of Jesus, and reinforce in others that they can trust Jesus and his word in a day where skepticism and distrust and conflicting information is at an all-time high. Guys, you know what people need? They need Jesus. We need to give people Jesus. But as we come to a close, I'm going to have Julian come back up. I want to share one last passage of Scripture with you from Paul's letter to the Galatian believers. Again, a lot of this letter is actually an outflow of this situation that led to the Jerusalem council. He wrote this to the believers in Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. He said, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the laws filled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And how badly does the church and the world need to hear this today? There's so much biting and devouring happening within the body of Christ. Forgetting that, you know what? We're going to spend all eternity with each other. You know when you have like a conflict and then you see somebody somewhere and how awkward it is? Thankfully, that won't happen in heaven. But guys, love our neighbor as ourselves. These people were thinking that the law was going to perfect them. They were buying into what these Judaizers, these false brethren were bringing in. He says, you want to really fulfill the law? Then love your neighbor as yourself. Love. Don't bite and devour. Through love, serve one another. Why? Because we've been called to liberty, not to bondage. It's freedom to serve one another in love. It is freedom to love our neighbor as ourself. It's freedom that we're able to walk in the spirit of God and not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Guys, I pray that our hearts would not be troubled or unsettled this morning. That our hearts would be at peace, resting in Jesus, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. Continuing in his grace, 
that through love we would serve one another, loving our neighbor as ourselves, not biting and devouring one another, but walking in the Spirit, and that we would be about Jesus, his kingdom, his mission, his gospel in these last days. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord Jesus, thank you that you're enough. Lord, that we don't need you plus something else to be accepted in the eyes of the Father. But just us repenting of our sin and turning to you by faith, placing our trust in you, Jesus. Trusting in what you've provided for us through your death and burial and resurrection. Jesus, thank you for ushering in a new covenant of grace. That as John said in his gospel, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Lord, we're thankful that God, we can come to you on the basis of grace. Because Lord, if we came to the, on the basis of our doings, our works, our righteousness, what we've done, Lord, none of us would be accepted because our righteousness is filthy rags in your sight. Jesus, thank you for opening the way, for being the way, the truth and the life. Lord, we want to follow you. Lord, we want to be about you in these days. Lord, we don't want to bite and devour one another. We don't want to be consumed by one another, but Lord, we want to build up not trouble and unsettle hearts, but Lord, be those who help bring stability to other believers that speak hope to people who are sitting in darkness and in bondage to the enemy. God, lead us in these days. Lord, fill us with your spirit. Lord, help us to walk in the spirit and not fulfill the lusts, the cravings of our flesh. Lord, be glorified in these days. Unify us, Lord, as your people under the banner of Jesus Christ, as your family, Lord, your blood-bought bride. Encourage my friends, Lord. You know where they're at and what they need to hear, God, ways that they need to be strengthened. Lord, areas maybe where we need to be convicted and corrected. But God, would you continue, Lord, this morning to speak those things and throughout this week, Lord, to speak those things and to keep those things in the front of our minds. That we would live out your word. Representing you, Lord Jesus, to this world that's dying and being separated from you by sin. But look, if there's anybody here this morning and you've come and you maybe just don't even have a that's just the first step. You don't have a personal saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Maybe you've thought that being a good person is what will get you there. Maybe you've bought into the lie that Jesus plus something else is what gains God's acceptance. It's not. He won't accept that, in fact. The only thing he'll accept is you coming through his son, through Christ alone. 
And this morning, if that's you, Jesus is ready to accept you. He is ready to forgive you. He is ready to wipe your slate clean, to justify you in the sight of the Father. That when the Father sees you, he would see the righteousness of Jesus Christ that's been imputed to you, put in your account by faith. That you would know what it is to be a part of this relationship through the grace of God. If that's you this morning, would you stand where you're at? I would love to pray for you. If that's anybody here, you're going, look, that's that's me this morning. And I know standing is a bold step, but you know what? Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father and all of the angels. Anybody at all this morning, you're going, that's me. I want to be forgiven. I want to be saved. Yeah, I see you. Anybody else this morning? You're going, that's that's me. Maybe some online, you're standing as well with some here in person. I just I just encourage you, this is the greatest thing that you could ever do. This is the greatest decision you could ever make to put your faith in Jesus Christ. I'm going to lead you guys in a prayer. If you just pray this with me and everyone else, just pray for these guys as they're standing. But just say, Jesus, I am a sinner. And Jesus, I believe you are my Savior. Jesus, would you forgive me of my sins? Would you justify me in the sight of God? Would you cleanse me of all unrighteousness and make me a new creation in Christ? Jesus, I believe you died on the cross, that you were buried, and that you rose from the grave. Jesus, I put my faith in you today. Be my Savior. Be my Lord. Be my God. I just encourage you as you prayed that this morning that the Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, you will be saved. Confidence. Lord, we thank you for these decisions this morning, God. We thank you for the power of your gospel to save Jesus, that you are a savior who loves to save And Lord, we want to respond to your word now, God, in songs of praise, Lord, just exalting you, Lord, for your greatness and goodness and and God being our God. And so, Lord, we thank you. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's rejoice in the Lord this morning.